Lamb rides the donkey. Have you ever seen a lamb riding on a donkey? Well, you will today. You will today. Incredible. Well, because the Lord Jesus was rejected by Israel as her Messiah, there have been those who have said that the events of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on what we commonly call Palm Sunday, that those events were no triumph at all, that it wasn't a triumphal entry, that it was actually a tragic entry, tragic in hindsight that things started so well on that day with literally hundreds of thousands shouting. They estimate that there were between two and three million people in Israel at this time, the time of the Passover. They say about two and a half million people. So things started so well with millions of people shouting Hosanna to the son of David and throwing their garments in the streets for him to ride upon. And yet things ended so badly. As we all know, you know, the end of the week, crucify him, crucify him. Yet, although it was indeed tragic for the people of Israel that they did not understand the heart and the soul of their true Messiah and the real purpose of his mission, and therefore they miss their opportunity for true deliverance and the kingdom on earth that they had so longed for had to be postponed, it was tragic for them, yet... It was absolutely a triumphal entry in that everything down to even the most minute little detail regarding Christ's entrance into the holy city made it one of the most remarkable and one of the most prophetically packed days of his entire life. And that is why I decided to call this two-part study on the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday. I've entitled it The King's Prophetic Entry is so packed. You won't believe how many prophecies were fulfilled on that one day alone. And the importance of this day is evidenced to us by the fact that it is found in all four Gospels. Now, I have a question for you. Terry's not allowed to answer because she hears it on Monday. But (laughs) do you, I know, did you, do any of you know When was the last time that we looked at all four Gospels regarding a single event in the life of the Lord? Any of you remember when the last time was that we looked at all four Gospels regarding a single event? You can't even cheat by looking in your books, Sylvia, because it was that far back. (laughs) Very good, Catherine. Very good. She gets a green star today, doesn't she? Even though you need the green because you're not wearing a jacket. You'd rather have a jacket. She's cold. <laughs> that, what? Yes, <laughs> except I got short sleeves, so I'd be up here freezing. Um, the last time that we saw an event in the Lord's life that was found in all four Gospels was the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 with just a small lad's lunch. And that had actually occurred one year previous to this Passover feast. When he fed the 5,000, he was feeding actually probably fifteen to 20,000 people, and they were Galilean Passover pilgrims. They were on their way down to celebrate the Passover feast in Jerusalem. You can read that in John 6, 4. And do you remember what the people had wanted to do after witnessing and experiencing that incredible miracle? What had they wanted to do? Right, they had tried to take him by force, it said in John six fifteen, and make him a king. You know, after all, with his powers. 
and with his ability to feed great multitudes of people with just a tiny little bit, they could conquer Rome. Why not take him with them as they went down to celebrate the Passover a year earlier and um, let him with his powers defeat Rome? And even if they had to, to all huddle into the holy city and be besieged by Rome for, for years and <laughs> decades, they could do it because he could feed all of them easily with just using a stone or something. So <laughs> the Lord had been greatly disappointed them by departing from them. Now, why do you think he did that? Why don't you think that he... Well, I know why he did it, because they wanted to crown him the wrong kind of king. But why couldn't Jesus have gone down to Jerusalem with that Passover crowd and presented himself to the nation as her king at that time, one year earlier? What difference would it have made? After all, we find that even a whole year later, the nation as a whole was still as much in the dark about his true kingship as the Passover crowd the previous year had been. So what difference would it have made? Well, to answer my own question, in addition to the fact that in the intervening year's time, the Lord did many important things, and he touched many people's lives directly, such as Zacchaeus and Bartimaeus, and he raised Lazarus from the dead, and many, many other things. And he spoke many wonderful truths that we wouldn't have in our Bibles if there hadn't been that additional year. Uh, And also, of course, he needed the additional year to train and to teach his apostles. But the bottom line reason for why he didn't go to Jerusalem at the previous Passover was that it was not the, the right Passover season. It was not the divinely established Passover season for Jesus to officially present himself as king to Israel. It was close. It was very close. It was within a year, but it wasn't precise. And you know what? God is always precise. He is always right on mark, right on the money. If the Lord had gone by the people's timetable that previous year, he would not have fulfilled to the very day the amazing prophecy that we find in Daniel chapter 9. So, oh, I had you in John 11, but do, would you keep a marker there and go back to go over to Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 9. Most of you are familiar with this because I talk about it so much, but Daniel's amazing 70 weeks prophecy. That prophecy was given to Daniel during the days of Israel's captivity in Babylon, some 500 years before Christ was even born. And in verse 25 of Daniel 9, it stated that the coming of the Messiah, the prince, to Israel would occur. You have to, do, you have to read the whole um, prophecy there, but I'm going to summarize it for you that the coming of the Messiah, the Prince of Israel, would occur 483 years. That's 69 weeks of years, and the years there speaks of seven years. So you have to multiply 69 times seven. You get 483 years after a decree was issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, based on the scriptural year, a scriptural year is 360 days as opposed to our Julian calendar year, which is 365 days days a year but if you take 483 years and multiply it times 360 days you have to use a scriptural year you get a total of 173,800 days so what this prophecy is saying 
is that Israel could know her Messiah 173,800 days from the issuing of a decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem had been destroyed. King Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it. Well, it was very convenient of God to give us in the scripture the very day that that decree was issued. It was issued by King Artaxerxes of Persia in the 20th year of his reign. And scholars can figure out what day that was. And that, by the way, is found in Jeremiah 2.1. They know that that date, according to our calendars, would be March 14th. 445 B.C. So all you have to do is start at March 14th, 445 B.C., and count forward 173,800 days, and you would have to the very day that Israel could count on her Messiah officially presenting himself to the nation. Okay? Now, when you do that, which scholars have done, You should have been, if you were living back in those days, you should have been looking for the Messiah to arrive on April 6th, 32 A.D., which also happened to be on the Jewish calendar. Now, they have a different calendar than we do. Their calendar starts with the month of Nisan, not January. And that and Passover, when the the day they were to choose their Passover lambs, was the 10th of Nisan. Every year on the 10th of Nisan, which is comparable to our somewhere in March or April, they're to select their Passover lamb. And that's according to Exodus chapter 12, verses 24 to 27. They would select their lamb on the 10th of Nisan, and then for the next three and a half days, they would, they would actually take that little lamb into their homes and it would become like a household pet. <laughs> which is sad because they'd kill it on the 14th. But for the next three and a half days, they would scrutinize, they would examine that lamb to make sure it was totally without blemish, spotless. And then on the 14th of Nisan, they were, it was to be slain, okay? And that's all according to Scripture. Well, when you count forward the necessary days according to Daniel's prophecy, you come to April 6, 38. 32 AD, which was also conveniently that year, the 10th of Nisan, the day the Israelites were to um, select their Passover lambs. And then during the next three and a half days of the Passion Week, the Lord, the Passover lamb himself, would stand before all kinds of scrutinizers who would examine him very, very closely. That's what we're going to be looking at during the next three and a half years. (laughs) We're going to look at the uh, Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees and Herod and Pilate all examining this lamb. And the conclusion, we could say, is basically summed up in the words of Pilate, who said, I find no fault in this man. Even his betrayer, Judas, acknowledged the sinlessness of Jesus when he said, I have betrayed the innocent blood. And the Sanhedrin, all the best that they could do is charge him falsely. That's the best they could do. So because he was found completely without spot, completely without any blemish at all, totally sinless, guess what happened? He was slain on the 14th of Nisan. (laughs) 
beautiful, absolutely. And that not only perfectly fit the Exodus Passover lamb, but it also, the picture of it, but it also fulfilled the next verse of Daniel 9. Look at verse 26. It says that after 483 years, you know, he'd officially present himself to the nation. After those years, what would happen? He would be cut off, but not for himself. Did he die for himself? No, we have to, if we don't have him, we have to die for ourselves because we have to pay the wages of sin for ourselves. He died not for himself. He died for you and me. Now think about it. If men could figure these calculations centuries after the fact, the Jewish scholars of Christ's day who had all the right calendars, you know, they had their calendar. We've had to, we've had to adjust our calendar um, you know, do the, the solar calendar thing and add leap years and do all the figuring. But they had it all right there before them. And really, even not just the scholars, but anyone back then paying close attention to the scriptures could have known with confidence when to the day and where, because we'll look at that later, the scripture says where he would present himself and it would be in Jerusalem and even how to expect him to arrive on the colt of a donkey, etc. Anyone could have um, had total confidence to know the real deal when he arrived, the true Messiah. The Sanhedrin mem- members actually, you know, they prided themselves on knowing the scripture. They should have had April 6, 32 A.D. circled on their calendars. They should have known that they should have been counting down to that date. They had all the necessary information that they needed. So no wonder Jesus wept when he looked down on this day, Palm Sunday, from the Mount of Olives as he approached. He comes from Bethany, goes through Bethpage, and they're on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And from that side of the Mount of Olives, you cannot see Jerusalem. Okay, so it's not till he gets up to the crest of the Mount of Olives that suddenly before him is he has a panoramic view of Jerusalem. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows she's going to reject him. She's going to miss the day of her visitation, as he says in Luke. And therefore, he wept for the city. You remember the first time in the scripture it says Jesus wept? It was for Lazarus. First time he wept, it was over the death of a man. The second time he wept, it was over the death of a nation. You know, did you ever get to thinking about the fact that no other Messiah... Now, there have been many... Many men who have come along down through the course of history since Jesus and claimed to be the Messiah. We've had all kinds of knuckleheads. <laughs> Jim Jones, David Koresh. There was a man uh, born and raised completely in New York. In New York, never even went to Israel, as far as I know. Certainly wasn't born there. Nachim Schneerson. How many of you heard of him? Just died a few years back. Many Jews believed in him as the Messiah. But did you realize that no other Messiah could ever, ever, ever be the real deal, the real Messiah, just based on Daniel's prophecy alone? Okay, who can come along and say that I fulfilled Daniel's prophecy, here I am, 173,800 days after the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem? No, none of them can do that, much less prove that they came from the tribe of Judah. And from the lineage of King David. Why? Because all the genealogical records were destroyed when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. No Jew to this day can prove what tribe he even comes from unless their last name is Levi or Cohen. Cohen, I mean, they know they came from the tribe of um, Levi. They're the only ones. 
the rest don't have a clue. God knows, <laughs> but they don't. But, you know, if Jesus wasn't the true Messiah, guess what? There is no hope for another Messiah to ever be the real one. He, he can't, there cannot, they cannot, cannot possibly fulfill all the scriptures like he did. And just this one. Okay, do you get it? All right, well, what, did I say something wrong? All right. <laughs> okay. Now, I don't want you to panic because I've already covered some of the lesson. I know we haven't even read one scripture yet, but we've already covered some of the lesson. But now let's look at John 11. Go back to John 11. And I'm going to begin by reading, start to start to read in verse 55. I won't tell you where else I'm going because it's kind of confusing, but let's start at this, uh, verse 55 of John 11. <clears throat> it says, here are all the pages turning. Okay, ready? And the first thing we notice is something sad. And the Jews Passover. <laughs> it was the Jews Passover. It wasn't the Lord's Passover any longer. And the Jews Passover was nigh at hand. And many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple. What think ye that he will not come to the feast? Who do you think they're talking about? Jesus, of course. Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. Okay, in verse 55 here, well, let me read verse um, 1 of chapter 12 in addition. Go back to chapter 12. It says, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. Okay, now you can go back to verse 55. And there we learn that one of the reasons why many people arrived early in Jerusalem before the Passover was to be made ceremonially clean through the rituals of purification so that they could participate in the Passover celebration. Now, the Passover was actually celebrated on the 14th of Nisan. But people came early to be purified. Now, just a quick look through the book of Leviticus will tell you why uh, so many people had to be purified because there's almost an endless number of ways that they could become defiled. And then when you consider all the gnat-straining additions to the law that the Pharisees had piled on, it becomes very clear why thousands upon thousands of Jews, devout Jews, poured into the city early before partaking of the Passover. These huge crowds of Jewish people, now think of this, they had come from not they had come from all parts of Israel. But they'd also come from even beyond Israel. The Jews, you know, the, of the di diaspora. They all came to Jerusalem and most of them came early so as not only to be purified but also to find a place to stay. When you have 2 to 3 million people coming into a city, you got to get there early so you can get a uh, you know a motel room somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, that's why you had to put them in a stable. That well, was Bethlehem. But anyway, they would literally not only stay in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem, but even in little villages and towns all around the city, such as in Bethany and Bethpage, which we'll look at today. But um, they would get there early so that they could put up some kind of a makeshift tent to stay in, then think, too, that they had to buy their, they had to purchase their approved lambs on the 10th of Nisan, because usually the lambs that they would take with them that were their own, the Jewish 
religious rulers had this little scandal going where they'd say they'd find some little blemish on their lambs and say, no, it's no good. You have to buy one of our lambs. And then they'd have to also exchange their local currency for Jewish shekels and get ripped off in the process of all of this. And we'll talk about this in our next lesson when we see Jesus cleaning the temple again of all this money-changing rip-off stuff, Annas' Bazaar. But, uh, you know, they had to get there early to do all of these things. Even though the Passover itself, as I says, said, was a one-day celebration on the, on the 14th of Nisan, it was immediately followed by another celebration, which was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Actually, in the mind of the Jews, those two feasts became sort of like one feast because the next day was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it went on for seven days. And in the middle of it, you had the Feast of First Fruits, which was on the 17th of Nisan, which, if you remember, 14th he was crucified, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, three days, three nights. On the 17th, he rose as the first fruit of the resurrection. It was right on the Feast of First Fruit. It's all so perfect. But when they came to Jerusalem for these three-in-a-row Jewish spring feasts, they came to stay a while. So they did indeed set up tents. Well, in verse 56, John tells us that the primary subject matter of the, of the conversations of the people as they stood in the temple waiting their turn to be purified or waiting in lines to purchase their lambs or waiting in lines to exchange their money, they were talking. And all their conversation was centered on one person, Jesus. Not only did they keep their eyes busily searching throughout the crowds to see if they spotted him. Now, remember, many people have already seen him. They know what he looks like. And so everybody's looking for him. Not only were they looking for him, but the hot-button question of the day was whether or not he would come to the feast. You see, it was public knowledge, at least for the Jews who lived in Judea, that um, the chief priests and the Pharisees had issued a command that if anybody knew of Jesus' whereabouts, they were to report to them so that they could do what? Arrest him. What did they really want to do? I mean, what hypocrites. You know, they're making sure everybody gets purified and they've got murder on their hearts. But they had no intention whatsoever of murdering him, of killing him during these feasts. They were going to wait until all the huge crowds of people were gone from the city, and then they would kill him. Because they knew if they kill him, killed him during the Passover celebration, the, the people would, there would be an uproar against them. But you see what Jesus did when he rode in? to the city on Palm Sunday, the 10th of Nisan, and got the religious rulers all upset and all uptight. He was actually forcing their hand. He was, he was moving their calendar up to meet with his divine calendar so that he would actually die on the very day that the Passover lambs were being slain and perfectly fulfill the Passover lamb picture of Exodus chapter 12. By the way, I was reading Layman Strauss's book, on the Feast of Israel, and he told me, and I didn't go and look at it, but he said, he told me, he was talking to me in that book, that um, every time it mentions the Passover lamb in uh, Exodus chapter 12, it's always in the singular. Now, there were literally thousands of lambs slain, but it always talked about the lamb singular. And I thought, wow, that's just one more interesting truth about the scripture it's just amazing well the people so the people are wondering is he going to come or isn't he you know is he afraid of the religious rulers and he won't show up etc etc now we can well imagine that most of the people attending the feast hoped that jesus 
would show up. Don't you know? They wanted him to be there. Many of them probably brought their blind and lame and handicapped friends with them so that he would heal them. A lot of them wanted to see him for the first time. They had never seen him before, but they'd heard so much about him. And then also, uh, I don't think they wanted him to show up so that he could be arrested by any means because nobody ever reported him to the authorities. They, millions of people saw him, but nobody goes running to the authorities. They had made this decree that if anybody knows where he is, report to them. Nobody does except one of his own disciples. The rest of the people, they, they're not interested in seeing him arrested at all. They want him to be out in the public. Many of them, I, I do believe, really thought he was their long-awaited Messiah. And of course they wanted him to show up and deliver them from Rome. But I think also they welcomed a confrontation between their not-too-loved religious rulers and this powerful prophet of Nazareth. Because word had it, word had it, and many had witnessed this firsthand, that this fella, this Jesus of Nazareth, had this uncanny way of making the scribes and Pharisees very uncomfortable when it came to debates. He had this way about him that silenced them and made them squirm. And who didn't want Jesus to show up at the Passover so that they could see their religious rulers squirm? That was the entertainment of the day. They didn't have internet. They didn't have television. To see the Pharisees squirm, well, that would be something to go home and talk about. So, yes, they were all hoping that Jesus would show up. So carefully whispering to one another behind the backs of the ubiquitous religious rulers. And you know what ubiquitous means? means that they were everywhere. And I got to reading. It said it took 20,000 priests to... to um, help with all the various activities and rituals and the slaying of the lambs, you know, the sacrifices and every, of, of everything that they had to do in the three-in-a-row Jewish spring feast. took 20,000 priests and even more than that, Levites. So let's say 25 or 30,000 Levites just to help with all the, everything that they had to do for these three feasts. And that doesn't even include your scribes and your Pharisees and your Sadducees. So when I say they were ubiquitous, that they were absolutely everywhere, I'm not kidding. They were. They were just everywhere. So the people, when they're talking to each other, they're kind of whispering. Um, and the topic of their conversation is, do you think that he will show up? Little did they know that there was absolutely no power on earth or in hell itself that could keep him away. Least of all, some puny little decree from some self-righteous, hypocritical, false shepherds who were ruled totally by their greed and their pride and their jealousy. So the emphatic question, answer to their buzzing question, do you think he'll come, was yes, absolutely, Jesus would be there. However, because... He was perfectly sinless. He had no need to get to Jerusalem early to participate in the rituals of purification. Why? Well, he had never been defiled. He was perfectly sinless. And it was still six days before the Passover. John 12, 1 says that, remember? Six days before. So when he arrived in the area of the holy city, he didn't actually get to Jerusalem yet, but he's within the area. And where had he just come from? Thank you, Jericho. He had just come from Jericho, all right? Probably he spent Thursday night in Jericho, maybe at Zacchaeus' house, most, most likely. He got up early on Friday morning, 
and you know with his men and probably a, a crowd went with him on that road from Jericho to Jerusalem it was about a six or seven hour walk he got into uh, in an area of Jerusalem right around that late afternoon maybe four four o'clock or something like that you know this is what I'm speculating and what commentaries speculate and then before the sun went down on Friday he had to get to we see he went to Bethany to spend the night with Mary, Lazarus, and, and uh, Martha. And then the very last Sabbath of his life, which would be from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, he spent that day with this beloved family. And this place in Bethany, he went to Bethany, where they lived, two miles outside of Jerusalem. Um, and this, this family, this, this home place, would be where he would go every night of the Passion Week, except the last night where he had the Lord's Supper. But um, what he would do is he'd get up early in the morning, as we'll see, Sunday morning he goes into Jerusalem, and then at night he comes back to Bethany and spends the night in Bethany. He didn't bring a makeshift tent. He stayed with this beloved family. Now remember, he has not seen Lazarus and, Mar- Lazarus and Martha and Mary since he r- raised him from the dead. So I'm sure he was anxious to go and see these wonderful compassionate, hospitable people. So that's what he did. Now, because if you will look at verses 2 to 8 of John chapter 12, 2 to 8, that is the account of the anointing of the Lord by Mary with her expensive spikenard perfume. But we know from Mark 14, 1 and Matthew 26, 1, that this anointing by Mary did not occur until two days before the Passover. So we're going to skip this. Now, John wasn't worried about being chronological. He stuck it in at this point in time in his gospel because he had just mentioned Bethany. So then he goes ahead and talks about that's where Martha hosted a dinner and Lazarus was there and Mary anointed the Lord with her spikenard perfume. But chronologically, it did not occur at this time. So if you'll skip that and go with me over to John chapter 9, let me read 9 through 11. John, John 12, John 12, John 12, 9, verse 9, I'm sorry, John 12, verse 9. It says, much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, where? In Bethany. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests, told you they're ubiquitous, Here's here's a new group now. The chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. Also, who else did they want to put to death? Jesus. Because that by reason of him, by reason of Lazarus, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Now, when I read that, many of the Jews, you know, usually when the scripture talks about the Jews, who are they talking about? Religious rulers. Many of the religious rulers believed on Jesus because of Lazarus. I think that includes many Pharisees. Maybe many scribes. I don't think it includes many, many chief priests. I'll tell you why in a minute. But All right. In verse 9, we learned that when many of the people found out that Jesus had gone to Bethany, they also went there. Why? Well, because, of course, they wanted to see Jesus, but they also wanted to see the one he had raised from the dead. They wanted to see Lazarus. Who wouldn't go? How many of you wouldn't go two miles to see a man who had been dead four days and was alive again? Of course, I'd go two miles to see such a sight. He was, he was a living witness of the divine power of Christ to give life. And it was a great curiosity. You talk about something to go home and talk about. <laughs> it's a great curiosity to see such a man. And his living witness was used by the Lord to bring many people, including many religious rulers, to salvation. 
even though there's not a single recorded word that we have in the scripture from the lips of Lazarus, don't you know that he had to have given the testimony many, many times over again? Here's what I think. I don't think he was a man of many words. You know, there's a lot of men that hardly ever speak. But uh, when they do, it's usually something profound. Here's what I think he said. This one thing I know. I was dead, and now I'm alive. One, one minute, I was enjoying myself in Abraham's bosom, and then all of a sudden this voice said, Lazarus, come forth! And I had no choice. Here I am, all over again. <laughs> well, when, when word of large masses of people going to Bethany to see both Lazarus and Jesus, when that word reached the ears of the chief priests, and when they learned that because of Lazarus, many of the people were believing on Jesus, they consulted together to put Lazarus to death. What an example of the truth of the words of Abraham, speaking of Abraham, when he spoke to the rich man down in Hades. Remember what Abraham had said? He said, though they, I mean, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. What an example these chief priests are. It's interesting that the chief priests who wanted to kill Lazarus were from the sect of the Sadducees. That's interesting because remember what the Sadducees believe or don't believe in? They don't believe in resurrection. And so they wanted to silence this man whose very life testified that their belief system was wrong. Well, let's move on now. now I don't know if they were ever successful in killing Lazarus. Do you think they were? I think the Gospels would have told us if they were. I think the Lord protected him somehow divinely protected him and that he went on to become a vibrant part of the new church. I don't think the Lord would have him raised from the dead just to be killed a couple weeks later. Uh, I just can't imagine that. I think he went on to, to use him for many, many years. And I do know that many Jewish people were saved because of his new life in Christ, and they too went from death to life because of Lazarus. Well, let's look at the beginning of the events of what occurred on what is popularly known Palm Sunday. And for this, I want you to turn to Mark 11, first of all. I'm going to read what Mark says. Um, and while you're doing that, let me just read. I should have read John 12:12. 12, 12. It says in John 12:12, 12, 12, On the next day, much people that were come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. We do know from that verse in John that the next day they spent the Sabbath night with, with uh, um, Martha and Mary in, in uh, Bethany. And then the next day they got up would have been Sunday morning. And now what we're going to read is what they did first thing Sunday morning. Now Matthew and Mark and Luke don't mention the Lord's night with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So they just start with when he got near to Jerusalem, he was in Bethpage and, and, and Bethany. So that's what we're going to read right now. Mark 11, 1. And when they came nigh to Jerusalem, skipped the night in Bethany, unto Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as ye be entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied, whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say that the Lord hath need of him. And straightway he, the Lord, will send him hither. That means he'll straightway send him back. Verse 4, And when and they went their way and found the colt tied by the door without in a place where two ways met. 
That was a crossroad. And they loose him. And certain of them, which Luke tells us were the owners of the animal, certain of them that stood there said unto them, said unto the disciples, What do ye loosing the colt? And they said unto them, even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. Okay, now I'm not going to... This, this account is given in all four Gospels about the cult here. But uh, Luke and John say basically the same thing as Mark. But I do want us to read what Matthew says about this. So now turn to Matthew 21. Keep your finger in Mark 11. But go over to Mark... I mean, excuse me, Matthew 21. And I'm going to read the first seven verses of this chapter. Matthew 21. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethpage unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. How many animals? Two. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, Can you imagine a man saying, Aught? <laughs> Uh, I know, I was just so weird. All right. If any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them, which means he'll, he'll send them back, okay? All this was done. Now, Matthew adds this as well. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. What prophet? Zechariah, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, which speaks of Jerusalem, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them and brought the ass and colt and the colt and put on them their clothes and they set him thereon. All right, stop right there. Okay, when the Lord got close to Bethpage, which is no longer in existence, they're not really sure where it was, but they figure it was about a mile from Bethany. Bethany was two miles for, from Jerusalem, so probably halfway between Bethany and Jerusalem was this little village of Bethpage, which in Hebrew means house of unripe figs. And uh, when they got close, he dis the Lord dispatched two of his disciples, we don't know which two, on a special mission on his behalf. And the details of his command to these two disciples were very specific. And they were very carefully and obediently obeyed to the letter, which is commendable for the two disciples when you consider the uncertainty of this matter. I mean, can you imagine going into a town where nobody knows you and loosing two animals and taking them? That could get you into a bit of trouble. And yet neither one of the disciples questions the Lord in this. You know, Lord, what are you talking about? We could be accused of theft. Uh, they don't question him, they obey. So many say, well, one of them could not have been Peter then. You know, not to question the Lord. <laughs> but actually, it's interesting, many commentators do think one of them was Peter. And the reason for that is because Mark gives us so many specific details about where the, they found the colt and the ass tied to a door on the place where two ways meet. And, you know, very specific. So they think it must have been someone who was there, an eyewitness. And we know Mark got his information from Peter. So many do speculate that one of them was Peter. Well, the Lord began his directions to the men by telling them to go to the village over against you, which sounds weird, but it means, uh, you know, opposite you. And as he told them as soon as they would get into that village, they would uh, find what they were looking for. 
And that assures them that they're not going to have a long search. As soon as you get there, you're going to find a colt tied. Now, Mark and Luke mention only, and, and John mention only the young colt, which in this case is the colt of an ass, the colt of a donkey. You can have a colt of a horse, but this is a colt of a donkey. But Matthew, and isn't it interesting that it's Matthew again who mentions that there were two. Remember, Matthew is the one who told us there were two demoniacs of Gadara, two blind men, Bartimaeus and his companion, who were healed outside of Jericho. And now he's the only one who mentions two, two animals in this situation. Now, how many of you have ever seen a picture of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? A picture. And in that picture that you, you can visualize in your mind, how many animals do you see him with? One. Why don't they ever read the scripture? Now, sure, he only rode one. He did not ride on two animals. <laughs> he only rode one. He rode the one who had never been ridden, the younger of the two. But with that animal was his mother. So any picture should have two animals coming into Jerusalem with the Lord. Now, why do you think that was? Why do you think that he said, bring both of them. Well, I think it's the heart of Jesus again. I think it's the compassion of Jesus. He wasn't going to separate that little colt from his mommy. So he brought the mommy ass with him. I always feel funny when I say that word, but it's biblical, okay? But <laughs> the Lord's compassion, he wasn't going to separate. Just think, that little colt had never been ridden before. Now he's going to be ridden for the first time in his life. You know what a colt usually does when they're ridden for the first time? They bolt. They bolt. So to have mommy with him would help with the tension. Besides, he had probably never been out of Bethpage before. And now he's going to go into the city when there's two or three million people around and he's going to be the central focus, the one on top of him. That could make an animal very nervous, right? So the Lord compassionately brings along his mommy for him. Well, it goes further than compassion. He brought mommy ass along with because he was fulfilling prophecy also. And we'll talk about that when we get to the Zechariah 9-9 prophecy. All right. Well, what the Lord then went on to tell the men was what they were to say if anyone questioned them. And, of course, he knew they would question the men. Because this could look like theft, you know, and could result in some very serious consequences, especially when you have Jewish people and lots of rocks around. <laughs> they were to say, uh, the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him back. Now, in the Greek, you don't, I mean, the English, you don't see what the Greek includes here is that he will send him back hither. So this is a promise that the Lord's going to, he just need the Lord needs them, but he'll return them. And we can figure that later that day, you know, he rides into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, he goes straight to the temple and he looks around at everything that's going on and doesn't like what he sees, you know, that all the ripoff artists at work there. And then he departs and he goes back to Bethany and spends Sunday night again with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So don't you know that on the way back, that's when he gave the owners back their two animals. So here he's promising he will send them back. Um, <clears throat> now, the response that they were to give strongly indicates that this appeal, the Lord hath need of him, that this appeal was made to someone who was familiar with the claims of Jesus and who acknowledged him as the Lord. So we believe that the owners of the two animals had, had known who Jesus was and had accepted him as the Lord. You notice what the Lord calls himself? The Lord. <laughs> the Lord. Otherwise, I don't think these owners would have let the disciples take them 
if they weren't also, you know, if they weren't believers and knew who they were speaking of when they said the Lord. They recognized that these two men were Galileans just by their speech. You could recognize a Galilean by his speech and by his clothing. So they knew when he said the Lord that they were speaking of Jesus. Remember now, Bethpage is only a mile from Bethany. And everybody in that area knew about Jesus and how he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And as I said, we know that these uh, men, and there were two, because it was owners, plural, over in Luke, that they were the owners of the animals. Now, by the fact, and they let them go. They let them take the animals. And by the fact that the two disciples found everything, when they got to Bethpage, they found everything exactly as Jesus had told them it would be. That tells us, again, of the omniscience of the Lord, doesn't it? And that he is exactly who he just said he was. He is the Lord. He could see what was going on in Bethpage, even though he wasn't. It also speaks of his... Well, his omniscience, his omnipresence, even though in his humanity he was in one place at a time. But remember how early in his ministry he had known what Nathaniel was doing when he was sitting under a fig tree? He even knew what Nathaniel was thinking about? So again, it just proves the deity. And also, think about this. This is so incredible. He had orchestrated one of the most important days in history. Yes, this was a very important day in history because... Held in the balance was whether the world, not only Israel, but would the world get the immediate kingdom or would it have to be postponed? Would Israel accept her Messiah when he presented himself to her on Palm Sunday or would she reject him? Now, it looks like she's accepting him when she says all her hosannas and everything, but really she does not. So this was a very critical day in human history for the whole world. And yet he sort of basically orchestrated this whole day around this little animal, this donkey. He had planned its birth, and he had planned the place of its birth, and he had planned the precise place that the little donkey and his mother would be on the morning of the 10th of Nisan of that particular year. He knew even that the owners would be nearby. It tells us that they had just basically tied the animals up and were still standing there so that the disciples could receive their permission from the owners. Otherwise, Jesus could be accused all these years. People could accuse Jesus of theft, right? If they hadn't gotten the permission from these two owners. So he he orchestrated so much of that day around this little animal. And if you think about that, if the Lord knew all about this little animal and actually planned the very details of its life, then what does that say about you and me? He loves us far more than he loved this little donkey. He knows everything about you and I. He planned us before the foundation of the earth. He knows every hair, hair on our heads and even has them numbered at every particular minute. You know, you just lost one, and he he knows the number that got changed of the hairs of your head. He's all-knowing, he's all-seeing, and yet, like this small donkey, the Lord of the universe, the Lord of creation, has need of us. Isn't that incredible? He could do it all without us, but he has chosen to have need of us because he wants us to participate in his work here on earth. It's wonderful to be part of his work, and we do have a job. Now, this little donkey, this little dog, donkey had a job to perform, and it was a most honored one. He was going to carry the lamb of God. Ever see a lamb riding a donkey, I asked you before? Yes. There was a little donkey carrying the lamb. He was going to carry the burden of the burden bearer of the sins of the whole world. How about that for a job? What an amazing job he was given. 
And you and I have a job, too. We talked about it in our lesson last week. We were created to give glory to God. And in the, in the absence of the king at this point in time, what, are, what is our job? We are to occupy. We are to be the businessmen, representatives of the departed king of kings until he returns, at which time we will help him rule over his kingdom. It's really amazing to think that the almighty one God, the almighty creator of the universe has chosen to have need of us, isn't it? So, you know, if you get up in the morning and you think, oh, I'm just so insignificant, I'm just so small, I'm just nothing, I'm just a nobody, remember this, if he has need of a stubborn colt of an ass, a little donkey, he can use any of us, right? He can well, when the two disciples brought the animal and its mother to Jesus, we, we uh, are told that they threw their own garments uh, upon the animal's backs. Both animals, Matthew tells us. Now, th- now they've got the idea, okay, Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem on one of these animals. They didn't know which one because you know what? The disciples at this point in time are all caught up about the excitement of the day. Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem People are already crowding around them, you know, starting to, it says later on, there's people everywhere, and they're already starting to hail him, and the disciples are excited. So do you think in their minds they're thinking about some prophecy written 500 years ago? Would you be, would you be thinking about Zechariah 9-9 at that particular time? You wouldn't be. I guarantee you none of us would have thought of it either. But they weren't thinking about Zechariah 9.9, so they don't know which animal he's going to ride. So they throw their garments on both of them, both animals, um, because they didn't have saddles, and this would prepare a cushion for the Lord to ride upon. However, the Lord purposely picked which one to ride on, the unridden colt, the lowliest, the smallest of the two, and the one that no man had ever sat upon before. Now, by the way, it usually takes a man, if you've ever been to a a rodeo or something, a man of some dexterity to break in a colt. But from the record found in all four Gospels, it appears that this unbroken colt was in complete subjection to the will of his rider, which also happens to be his creator. This easy riding, it just says they set him upon him. And he started to walk. There's no mention of any bucking or anything. This easy riding of this unbroken colt is just another proof, again, of the Lord's deity and his dominion over even the beasts of the field. You know, it tells us in Psalm 8, verses 7 and 8, I think it is, that he has dominion over the fish of the sea. Haven't we seen that? You know, he you know, got the fish in the nets, etc., and that one fish with the tax money in his And here we see he even has dominion over the beasts of the field. He, of course, even has dominion over the wild animals. Didn't he silence, uh, I mean, um, close the mouths of the lions in the den with, with Daniel? You know, he has dominion over the animal creatures. So, uh, and by the way, this is the first and the only time we ever read of Jesus traveling anywhere other than by foot. The only time. Now, this colt might have only been an animal, and one which is known for... What is, a, what is a donkey known for? Stubbornness. All right. This is an animal known for stubbornness, but it was smarter and it was less stubborn than the religious rulers of Israel. 
and uh, than most of the nation, for that matter. And I'm not trying to be cute, <laughs> although a part of me is because I'm so carnal. But um, I'm also being very biblical because it says in Isaiah 1.3, this is what it says, Isaiah 1.3, the ox knows his owner and the ass knows his master's crib. But Israel doesn't know. My people doth not consider. So you see, I'm being biblical. The lower creatures act in subjection to the will of their creator and their owner and their master. It's only man who sets himself in opposition to the will of God, right? Why is that? Pride. Yeah, we're the stubborn ones. And it's also because God has given us free choice. Well, the Lord had a reason for making his Sunday morning preparations to enter Jerusalem so detailed. And now here, I don't know where you are, but go to Matthew 21, all right? Um, Matthew 21, 4 tells us that he was deliberately fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9, 9, which states this. Okay, this is what it actually says over in Zechariah 9, 9. You don't have to go there. You can if you want to. But um, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. That speaks of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Now, I don't know. Maybe the Lord let the little animal have a break and rode his mother for a while. Maybe rode the mother on the way back. I don't know. But it says here that he rode both of them at one point in time. Now, the Apostle John, over in his account in John chapter 12, remember, he was an eyewitness. He was there when all of this happened. And he tells us in verse 16 of John 12 that none of them understood what the Lord was doing at this time. They didn't get it. They, they just figured, oh, this is an exciting day. But they didn't remember Zechariah 9.9. And it didn't, you know, everything didn't fall into place for them until after the Lord's glorification after he was resurrected. Then, uh, maybe when he was speaking to them, maybe he told them, you know, remember what I did on Palm Sunday? <laughs> Last, you know, just a week ago? Here's what I was doing. And then he probably opened up Zechariah 9.9 and read it to them and all lights went off. But at the time it was happening, they didn't get it. Now, interestingly, if there had not been two animals, which only Matthew told us about, this prophecy from Zechariah 9.9 would not have been precisely fulfilled because Zechariah does indeed mention two animals, the mother and the baby. It's also interesting to realize that this whole scene was yet the fulfillment of another prophecy. Now, do you think that the disciples were thinking of Genesis 49.11 at this time? No. Would you have been? No, I doubt it. You probably weren't even today. <laughs> <laughs> but way back in Genesis 49, can you imagine all that time ago, when Jacob, the patriarch Jacob, lay dying, he was inspired by God the Holy Spirit to prophesy to his 12 sons, give each one of them one by one a prophecy about their, their, the future, their future uh, generations. And when he got to his fourth son, who was Judah, he gave this prophecy. Now, a lot of you know part of it, but you might not have remembered the other part. He said that the scepter, which is a king's staff or rod, he said the scepter shall not depart from Judah, 
That's saying that the king is going to come from the tribe of Judah. Nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. Now Shiloh is a Hebrew word for the, another Hebrew word for the Messiah. And it literally means peacemaker. And it goes on to say, And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now, do you remember this part? Binding his foal, F-O-A-L, unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. That's in Hebrews 49, verses 9 to 11. All right. Did I say Hebrews? Where did that come from? I'm sorry. Genesis. Genesis. <laughs> Genesis 49. Now, this prophecy received its literal fulfillment at Christ's official entrance into Jerusalem as the hundreds of thousands of people, now remember, representatives of the entire nation were gathered around him. What did it say? The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh come and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. This is the first time in Christ's life when he has around him a gathering of all the representatives of the entire nation of Israel from everywhere. They're all represented there and they're all hailing him as king. And it says that he would be at this time binding his foal unto the vine and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. The vine represents the nation of Israel. The choice vine is a picture of who? Jesus. John 15, 1. I am the vine, he said, and ye are the branches. So what is the prophecy saying? Well, it's saying that the choice vine, Shiloh, peacemaker, from the tribe of Judah, the Messiah, the king, the lawgiver, would present himself officially to the vine at a time when the whole gathering of the nation with the people would be, he would officially present himself to the vine, the nation of Israel, seated upon the foal of an ass. And somehow in this prophecy, it sounds like there are two animals there as well. So it's incredible, all the way back to Genesis. Now, there are several factors to notice about a colt of an ass that fit in so very well with why it was selected by God for this critical day. The colt was a symbol of peace. It was used by kings. Do you know what King Solomon rode upon when David lay dying? They said, who are you going to give your kingdom to? Which one of your sons? And he said to Solomon, go get him and put him on a mule and ride him into Jerusalem. Solomon, the son of David, rode into Jerusalem on a mule. You know, kind of all the same donkeys, mules, <laughs> a little bit different, but still. Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was the animal used by kings for Israel and judges and chieftains to symbolize their peaceful intentions when they rode into a city. So it was a, a colt was a symbol of peace. The animal was also a symbol of service. It was a noble animal used in the service of men to carry their burdens. Jesus rode upon this colt to demonstrate that he came to serve men. What did he say? I've come to not be ministered unto, but to minister. He came to bear the burdens of men. So it was a very appropriate animal. Also, the unridden colt symbolized sacredness. Animals and things used for sacred or religious purposes had to be animals or things that had never been used before. 
This is according to Numbers 19.2, Deuteronomy 21.3, 1 Samuel 16.7. Arthur Pink says this, he says, quote, Like his birth of a virgin, a woman who had never been used before, a womb that had never been used before, like his burial in a new sepulcher, where it says, Wherein was never man yet laid, John 19.41. So here, on the only public occasion when Jesus assumed anything like majesty, he selected a colt which had never previously been ridden. How blessedly this points to both the dignity and the sacredness of his person. Right? Perfect picture of him riding into Jerusalem on this creature. Symbol of peace, symbol of service, symbol of sacredness. Well, let's go back for just a minute to the Zechariah prophecy as Matthew was inspired to record it. So Matthew 21.4, are you still there? Or 21.5, I should say, 21.5. Notice that Jerusalem was to be told something. It says, tell ye the daughter of Zion. The daughter of Zion speaks of Jerusalem. Zion is the highest hill in Jerusalem. Okay, now she's to be told something. She is to be given a warning of what to expect. And she had to be told these things because it was not going to happen like she would expect for it to happen. So what's the first warning given in this prophecy? The first warning is this. Behold. You know what that means? Look carefully. I'm telling you, look carefully. Your king's going to come unto you. Where? He's going to come unto you, Jerusalem. All right, so where are they to be looking for their king? He's going to come unto the daughter of Zion, which speaks of Jerusalem. Now, this is amazing because when Zechariah wrote this prophecy, there was no king in Israel at that time. It was right after the Babylonian captivity. No king. Guess what? No Jerusalem. It lay in ruins. So this was giving hope to the people back then. You're going to have a king, and and he's going to come to Jerusalem, so Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. So be looking for him. Be looking for him carefully. And here's another part of the warning. He's not going to come to you as you would expect him to come. You see, there was very great danger, as we know, in the nation's own expectations and her own ideas of how he would come. And the danger was this. If you're not looking carefully, you might miss him. Because you got your ideas, but here's what you're supposed to look for. He's going to come to you, Jerusalem, and how is he going to come? Meek. Meek. What a lesson we have to learn from the Jewish people. You know why? They did not take their Old Testament scriptures literally when they didn't like what it said or when they didn't understand it. And instead, they inserted their own ideas, didn't they? What a lesson to us. Take the word of God for what it says. Don't make up your own interpretation of it. If she had been looking for her king on the 173,800 day of Daniel's prophecy, literally, if she had known that he was going to arrive in Jerusalem meek, she would have known him, wouldn't she? And here's the next part. She's even given another warning. Not only is he coming meek, he's going to be coming, what? Sitting upon an ass and a colt, the foal of an ass. How much more do you people need to have? How much more information do you have to have from my word so you know my son? 
the Messiah, I've sent to you, that I've promised since Genesis 3.15 that I would send to you. You see the danger? And what happened? They missed it because they had their own ideas instead of what God's Word said. That's such a warning to you and I. Now, um, also, if you think about the fact that, uh, that he came, instead, you know, they would expect him to come riding in on a white stallion. <clears throat> but he came in as a gentle, meek king of peace, as Shiloh, to, to uh, reconcile the world to God, to save the world. He wasn't, going to, he wasn't coming to kill men and overthrow governments, but he was coming to win men's hearts and, and their lives. He was coming to seek and to save that which was lost. So it was very appropriate. Also, um, even though the Romans... You, you just think about two or three million Jewish people in the city at this time. You know the Romans brought in more soldiers, Roman soldiers, because they could suspect some kind of a rebellion every year at Passover. There had been rebellions in the past, and many Jewish people had been killed. But um, at this particular time, when this guy is coming and people are all excited and hailing him, they, you know they had extra Roman soldiers on duty. And when they would look over and see this supposed king come riding in on a donkey, it... It, would, it just became a laugh. I'm sure the Romans were sitting there laughing about it. They weren't uptight at all anymore. So the Lord did this too so that, you know, it would disarm their suspicions about him. He wasn't going to come to overthrow them. He was coming in peacefully. So all of this makes a whole lot of sense. Now, even though the world would in general deem it totally inappropriate that any king, much less the king of kings, would make his triumphal entry mounted on the colt of an ass rather than some beautiful white stallion or in some golden regal chariot, yet this is exactly what the Lord Jesus did. Why did he do it? Well, it was because it was the divine plan. Just like the fact that he had been born in an animal stable and placed in an animal food trough as a, as a baby. That's what a manger is, is an animal food trough. What would the world expect for the Son of God to have been born in? A great big palace and laid in some jewel-covered bassinet. But, you know, this shows us that his kingdom was not of this world. His ideas are, are higher than our ideas and different. But the scripture says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Now, I've got news for the world. At the time of his second coming, everything is going to be different. Everything's going to be changed. He is not going to come in humiliation as a servant lamb upon a lowly donkey to seek and to save the lost, but he is going to come in glorification as a sovereign lion upon a white horse. You want your white horse? You're going to get it at the second coming. He's not going to come to seek and to save that which was lost anymore. He's going to come to conquer and to rule and to judge. Now I'm going to close with this last prophetic fulfillment. And this um, has to do with every, everything was so specific on this day and we're only halfway through. <laughs> but not only did he arrive on the day prophesied that he would arrive, and in the way he was prophesied to arrive and uh, where he was prophesied to arrive, but the pathway that he took to Jerusalem had also been pro prophesied. You remember Ezekiel's vision of the Shekinah glory of God departing from Israel, from the, from the temple in Jerusalem? 
was a sad day. God was removing his glory, his presence from Israel because of all her many abominations. And Ichabod was written over Israel, which means the glory has departed. Well, Ezekiel was given that vision, and he saw the glory depart, first of all, from out of the temple, you know, over the wings of the cherubim, uh, over the Ark of the Covenant. It arose, and uh, well, that's where it stayed, and then it, it left the temple, and he saw it go out the temple, out the city through the eastern gate, down the Kidron Valley, and then up the Mount of Olives, and then up, up, and away. Well, now here on Palm Sunday, guess what's happening? And Israel doesn't know it. She misses it. But the Shekinah glory of God is coming back to Israel in the veiled human flesh of Jesus Christ. And so you just reverse that path. That's what he did. He came from the Mount of Olives where he had that panoramic view of Jerusalem and he wept. We'll talk about that next week, Lord willing. Wept over the city. And then he comes down from the Mount of Olives, the Kidron Valley, and he goes into the city on a little donkey with mommy nearby, and he goes through the eastern gate, and where does he go straight to? The temple. And he looks around, and what he sees he does not like. It's been three years since he cleansed it the first time. He's going to cleanse it again. But isn't it amazing? It is absolutely, absolute Scripture How can you deny, just studying Daniel's prophecy alone, that this is not the word of God? I don't know. I just wish I could take people and shake them and say, listen, listen, listen. Listen to the warnings of the the Lord God. He is coming. He came the first time exactly like Scripture said he would, to the precise detail. So guess what? With every confidence in the world, we can know that he is coming the second time just as prophecy says he will. We need to be studying prophetic scripture to find out when he's coming. Well, that's another story, but it's soon. All right, let's pray.